I would ask that you please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes to us from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 4 and verses 1 to 11. Revelation chapter 4 and verses 1 to 11. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Brothers and sisters, if you would, then please hear with me the reading of God's inspired and infallible Word. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship. They worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, it was two weeks ago that we concluded chapter 3. And as we concluded chapter 3, we also brought to an end uh, the first vision that John had received from Christ. And it was in that first vision that we said, John beholds the exalted Christ who tells John to, to write down this vision and to send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor so that they might know that Christ their Savior has not forsaken them that He is still with them, that He walks amongst them, that He is watching over them, that He sees everything that is occurring to them 
And He sees everything that is being done by them. And that truth is made evident in each of those seven letters that Jesus has John write to the churches. As He, with great diagnostic ability, points out the the failings of many of those churches. And it's evident that Christ is walking amongst His churches and that He sees everything that's going on also by the praise that He gives to His churches. Right? In, in commending them for holding fast to His name. Right? For, for not delving in to the pagan culture around them, even if that meant for them loss of livelihood. Even if that meant imprisonment. Even if that spelled their demise. And for these churches, there were many reasons for them to succumb to the pressure around them. I mean, think about it. The saints living in the, in the first century, 95 AD this time, feel the, the walls caving in and closing in all around them. Their neighbors, the same people they went to work with, were pressuring them to do what? Right? To, to involve themselves in idolatrous practices. To join in in pagan festivals. And if the Christian refused to do that, what would happen? He would lose his job. He would be ostracized in society. He would have to live in poverty. Also, the Christians in these churches are dealing with persecution from the uh, Jewish folk as well. Right? Those who are in the synagogues in those areas. They're persecuting the Christians because what? Because of their testimony to their faith in Jesus Christ. Because of their witness to Christ as the true Messiah whom the Israelites, many of them, rejected. But not only were their neighbors pressuring them, not only were the Jewish folk pressuring them, but likewise, Roman authorities were pressuring the Christians as well. Right here, they start to, to test the allegiance of the Christians by forcing them to do, to do what? To declare Caesar as Lord. And to deny Christ. And if they fail to do that, they would be punished with death. And so we see all that's going on at this time. All the pressure that's caving in and and closing in on them from every angle. And so what do we see here? Christ, in His perfect timing, unfolds this revelation to His church that they so desperately need. As many of them are scared. right? They're confused. They're struggling through much tribulation. right? Not wanting their destiny to be what the Roman authorities have them to be. And rather, they, they want something else for themselves. right? They don't want poverty. They don't want suffering. They don't want death. But this is why then Christ writes these letters. And this is why at the end of each letter, what does He do? He ends with a promise. right? He ends by promising them right, these great benefits that they will receive as even if they die, they are going to be uh, enraptured up into heaven. To be with the Lord forever. To have eternal fellowship with Him. This is the the promise He gives at the end of every letter that they need to hear so that they might endure to the bitter end. They needed encouragement which their Savior could only provide as He was the One who had offered offered up Himself for the saints. And it's that encouragement, it's, it's that comfort that is being conveyed that we see ends chapter 3. In particular, we see that as Christ is sitting on the throne, presently reigning as King. We read that in chapter 3, verse 21. 
The one who conquers, we're told, Christ says, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. And so it's this picture of Jesus presently on the throne, which now leads us into the second vision this morning. And this is what we begin with in verse 1, where we read this. After this, that is after the first vision, I looked and behold a, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then starting in verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. Okay, so there's a few things I want us to recognize. The first is that time elapsed between the end of the first vision and the beginning of the second. Right? It's, it's in uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 where John is first uh, caught up in the Spirit and he first hears the voice of someone that sounds like a trumpet. That's Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. Well, now here in verse 1 of chapter Four, we hear it a second time. And so we, what we've seen in chapter 1 was that he is caught up in this vision. He is given this vision. But now, we don't know how long it's been, but he has come out of that ecstatic spiritual state for some time, only now to be captured or, or caught back up in it as this new revelation, as new vision is about to be unfolded to John. So what do we see? We see an open door into heaven. And John says, a voice like a trumpet was speaking to him. Now, a trumpet often sounds when it's time for new revelation to begin to be given. A trumpet sounds oftentimes when it is time to meet with God. And we see this in a text like Exodus chapter 19. Right? It's there that God tells Moses in verse 13 of chapter 19, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Then in verse 19, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so we see that in like manner, that same voice of a trumpet has now come to John just like it came to Moses, so that Christ might now unfold new revelation to His servant. Now also, what we need to see, though, is that this vision is not something that all believers had or that everyone had. Even the voice of the trumpet is not something that everyone heard. Right? The, the calling to come up is directed to who? It's directed to one person. Right? It's directed to John. See, what we need to see here in verse 1 is that this is a prophetic call up into the heavenly counsel of God, just as He did with prophets of old, like Zechariah and like Isaiah. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to see this is not a physical departure. John is not in Patmos and all of a sudden levitates out of it. Right? He doesn't all of a sudden poof and vanish. It's not a physical rapture of John that we're told happens, but rather what? A spiritual one. He is caught up in the Spirit. Right? He is spiritually taken up to see the new vision that Christ will reveal to him. 
Right? Oftentimes it's here. It's in this verse that we're told. This is where the rapture of the church occurs. Right? This is where the church will be caught up into heaven. Right? Before the tribulation period. But I want us to see, as we look at the text, there is not one piece of evidence to support that type of interpretation. Nowhere are we told that the church is here. Nowhere are we told that they are raptured up or that some secret rapture occurs. Right? Nowhere do we see this. Rather, we're told one man, who is John, is caught up in the Spirit in order that God might reveal something to him to convey to the church who must exist and live during the time of the tribulation, which is only going to intensify until the return of Christ. Now, with that being said, what we want to do then for the remainder of our time is look at our text under three main headings to understand what it is then that Jesus is revealing to John for the benefit of the church. And so those three points are this. The first point we will call purpose. Purpose. The second point we will call picture. Picture. And the third point we will call practical application. So we have purpose, we have picture, we have practical application. So, brothers and sisters, the question is, what is then the purpose of this vision? What is the purpose of this vision? Well, it ought to be pretty obvious to us in light of all that we have been reading about what's going on in these churches. But what I also want us to see is that the same purpose is for us and speaks to us even here today. Right, the purpose of conveying this to the church then is the same purpose in conveying it and handing it down to the saints today as well. Right, Things, events, are happening all around us, just as they did then. They are also happening not only around us, but to us. And we, with the world, so often speak of those events that are happening as if they're ultimately under the control of the hands of men. We oftentimes speak of events that we see happen around us right? as if men are in control of all things. Ultimately, how things transpire is, is under their control. And so we respond to those things or we explain those things by what? By what usually we see. We explain events that occur around us and what happens to us by what we see that is observable. Right? Unfortunately, Christians are, are just as guilty of this as the world is. Right? As Christians, we see what? We see chaos around us. We see unrest. We see war. We see sickness. We see persecution. And we tend to believe that it is evil powers that are hostile towards God, that are ruling over all things. And so we get down about this, don't we? Right? We, we pity ourselves. We, we pity our circumstances and our condition. Right? The, the church in the first century is being severely persecuted. And many of them want out. Right? They don't want to be persecuted. They want out of this. This is not what they desire for themselves. But herein lies the problem, not only of the churches in the first century, but the churches today. And that is this, that too often we view things from an earthly plane. Too often we view things from an earthly plane. And think about it. 
If these seven churches only viewed things from an earthly plane, it would be easy for them to give up, give up, wouldn't it be? To just count it all a loss and just compromise with the world. Right? John himself recognized this. Right now, he is banished to the island of Patmos. He is away from all of Christian churches. He is away from his family. And he is away from his friends. It is easy for John right now, if he looked at things from an earthly plane, to throw in the towel and to just turn to spiritual despondency. And so this is why the vision is given. This is the purpose of the vision. That in the midst of all of their suffering, in the midst of all of their trials, all of their struggle, all of their tribulation, that Jesus is directing their eyes off of the earthly plane and to a heavenly one. And more specifically, brothers and sisters, He is directing their eyes away from themselves and their own circumstances and to the throne where God reigns. That is what He is doing. Even today, brothers and sisters, we need to understand this. This is a lesson unto all of us that when we are beaten down, when our faith is shaken, when we are questioning our faith or or unbelief assails us, the proper and only remedy for the church is to not look inward, to not look earthly, but rather to focus and fixate our gaze upon the throne room. Right? That, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus is directing the church's gaze to. The throne. These seven churches seemingly were stuck under Caesar's throne, were they not? They were seemingly stuck under Satan's throne. Today, in our day and age, it's, it's seemingly the case that Satan's throne rules all around us. But brothers and sisters, if we want true insight into what is taking place, we must abandon the earthly plane and look heavenward. Right? We must look upward. We must start by viewing things from a heavenly perspective and not from an earthly one. And so this is why Jesus then brings John to the throne room, right, to remind him and to remind all the saints who sits on the throne and who is in charge of everything that is taking place. Right? That is what is going on here. And he's telling them exactly what will be, what will happen. He tells them exactly what the outcome of the church will be, as only he can do. For the one who sits on the throne is the sovereign over the world as he brought heaven and earth into existence. As one commentator puts it, the one lesson we must take from this vision, both in chapter 4 and chapter 5, is that the throne rules over all. Right? If there's one thing we take from 4 and 5, the throne rules over all. Right? This is immediately what John is given a vision of, isn't it? In verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Right? That's what he sees. Psalm 99, verse 1. What are we told there? The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The purpose of the vision is to show them who sits on the throne so they might know it is the one who sits on the throne who rules over salvation and judgment. 
Right? He rules over all. Nothing that happens to us, nothing that happened to the church in the first century was by accident, by chance, or by blind fate. Right? There's a, a spiritual war going on, brothers and sisters. It is a battle between two kingdoms, but only one kingdom can win. It's the same battle that was taking place in the first century as it takes place today. But what Jesus is revealing to us in the text is that the kingdom that wins, the kingdom that is victorious, is the kingdom of Christ. That is the picture that He gives to the saints. And so in this vision, Jesus is encouraging His church so that they might know that Satan's kingdom has been displaced by the work of Christ. And that they may also know that it's by that same work of Christ that one day Satan's kingdom will ultimately be obliterated and destroyed. Where in the new heavens and the new earth there will be not a trace that remains. But until that day, until that day, brothers and sisters, keep looking to the throne. Keep looking to the throne. Yes, you will suffer in this life. But take to heart, Christian, that your God is omniscient. That your God is omnipotent. That your God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God to His people. That your God is the one who is guiding and directing all of human history to its proper ends. Which ought to enable the church to get through those dark times and enable us to get through the tribulation knowing that what Paul says is true in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, that's what chapter 4 is all about. That is what chapter 4 is all about. To make it about anything else is to lose the entire point. It's to miss out on the entire point of the text. Right? If chapter 4 is only dealing with future events where the church is going to be raptured out of the earth and not even going to be there, what is the purpose of giving John this vision to a first century church to whom he is writing this letter to? There is none. But see that if we read this text and understand it in light of how God intended it for us to be read and interpreted, see what a great grace it is from God to His church. What a great grace it is, this vision that He has unfolded for His church to see that we might be comforted and encouraged by our Lord. God knows that the greatest remedy for His struggling church is to give them a glimpse into heaven. That's what He does here in the text. That Those seven churches, all the churches in Asia Minor are struggling. So what does He do? He gives them a glimpse into heaven. He shows them the outcome of the world, what the outcome of the world will be, so that they might be encouraged. What peace of mind that gave the saints in the first century. What peace of mind it ought to give every single one of us who sit here today, as Jesus reminds us to keep a heavenly perspective in the midst of all of our struggles. That moves us then to our second point, which is picture. Second point, which is picture. And as we move from purpose to picture, you might say, well, 
There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of things going on in this book. Where in the world do you get that interpretation that you just gave us? Well, that's what we're going to do here in our second point. Is we're, going to, we're going to now tease that out by looking directly to the text. So immediately, what are we told that John sees? Right, we're told he sees a throne in heaven with one seated on it. Now, let me just ask you, does everyone stop? Just think to yourselves, it shouldn't be that hard. Right? What is a throne a symbol for? Right? Power? Authority? Right? Sovereignty over one's kingdom? Right? A throne is what? It's, it's royal furniture that a, a king sits upon? Right? And so here's the imagery of the, of the throne that John sees in heaven. And I think this is affirmed later on in verse 8. Where the four living creatures are saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? The throne is a picture or a symbolic of His power, of His might as He sits as King over His kingdom. Right? That's what we see here. And He who sat there had an appearance, we're told, of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald. We read all of that in verse 3. Here, what is it that we see? Well, John isn't trying to tell us what God looks like. Right? He doesn't describe for us something in human form, does he? He can't. How can you describe in human form, or any form in that matter, something that is spirit and invisible? So what is John here describing, or what is he seeing in this vision that Jesus is showing to him? What Jesus is showing to him by these jewels, right, is the glory of being in the presence of God. Right? That is what he is showing to him. He describes the glory, the splendor, and the beauty of he who himself is the source of all glory and splendor and beauty. Jasper, carnelian, emerald. Where are those? Right? Three stones. Right, three jewels. Jasper, the first one here on the list, is actually repeated in Revelation chapter 21. And do you know what it's linked with? It's linked with glory. Right? Revelation chapter 21, verse 11. John describes the new Jerusalem, which he says came down, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper. Clear as a crystal. And so we see there, this stone is linked with glory. Now a carnelian stone was a stone that was kind of blood red. Emerald green. Now, we aren't told what these stones are. We, it's not necessary to, to read too much into, into the stones themselves other than to see that the purpose of the stones here in the text is to conjure up for the saints in their minds a picture of the majesty of God which these precious jewels are symbolic of. That is what they are, are there for. That is what they are symbolizing. Right? The stones, as one author puts it, intensify the light around the throne by reflecting the glory that surrounded God as the One who is full of light. Right? That is what the, those jewels are symbolizing. Right? The, the, the glory of God and those precious jewels are reflecting it. 
Right? That is what John beholds in his vision. Right? This is what we read in a text like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Right? Paul tells Timothy what? That God dwells in unapproachable light. Right? So these stones that he saw were symbolic of the same thing that the psalmist declares in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, where he says this, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a garment. Alright, so do we see that? That these, these stones are linked with glory as they reflect the glory and the light of God who sits upon His throne. Alright? Furthermore, a rainbow, we're told, was around the throne. Now, what should a rainbow cause us to think of immediately? It ought to cause us to go right back to Genesis 9, shouldn't it? In verses 16 and 17, where, where God makes that eternal covenant with creation. And the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. And so it symbolizes what? At that time, that God's judgments will be met with mercy for His people. Right? He flooded the whole earth, killed all of creation except for His eighth. And so we need to see what, what this rainbow likewise signifies because in chapter 6, He's going to do what? He's going to met out His judgments. What this rainbow symbolizes around the throne is that likewise, although He mets out judgments, that He will continue to show His mercy to His new creation now. Right? He will continue to show mercy to His people. Likewise, the, the rainbow imagery ought to evoke, likewise, or turn us to thinking once again about the radiance of God's glory. In Revelation chapter 4, it oftentimes is referencing Ezekiel. And Ezekiel in chapter 1 references the rainbow and connects it to the glory of God. And so we see this in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28. So Ezekiel says this, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around us. And so likewise, the rainbow right, is symbolic, likewise, of the glory of God, just like the precious stones were. So this is what John is being caught up into. This is what he sees as, as he sees one seated upon the throne. He doesn't see a picture of a person. Rather, he sees glory. right? The glory, the beauty, the, the splendor of the one who sits upon the throne. Now after describing the, the radiance of such glory, in verse 4 we're told that there are now 24 thrones around the throne. And on the 24 thrones are 24 elders who are wearing white garments and are crown and have golden crowns upon their heads. Now this ought to be understood in light of of a parallel vision in Revelation chapter 21 verses 12 and 14 where we read this that this is where the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel are inscribed on the heavenly city and the wall of the city we're told has 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so what we need to see is that the twenty-four elders around the throne correspond to the twelve patriarchs and to the twelve elders. And when they are combined, they symbolize 
right? The redeemed from every age, right? That is what John sees. He sees the redeemed from the Old Testament to the New, the redeemed from all ages surrounding the throne. And we know that this is the saints he's talking about. They've been wearing white garments, right? They've been washed by the blood of Christ. They have golden uh, crowns upon their head being made more than conquerors with Christ. Then in verse 5, what do we read? That from the throne came flashes of, of lightning and and peals of thunder. Which is something that we also see in Exodus chapter 19. Right? When God meets with Moses, we're told that flashings of lightning occur and rumblings of thunder occur. And what did it do? It scared the Israelites, thinking to themselves, who is it that can enter into the presence of God? Right? Knowing that He is just pure and total holiness. Knowing that they will be undone if they walk into His presence. The same is true in the heavenly tabernacle. Christ, excuse me, God sits enthroned on high in pure and total holiness. And we need to be cautious as we enter into the presence of God. That is what the lightning and the thunder symbolize to us. Right? They are symbols of the holiness of God that ought to cause us to tremble in fear as we enter into His presence. Then we are told that there are seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, which we've said in previous sermons. The, the seven spirits of God simply uh, conveys to us the idea of the, of the fullness of the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so we see here the, the, the Holy Spirit in its fullness is there in this vision around the throne. And before the throne, we likewise and are told is a, is a sea of glass in verse 6. Now what we also see later in the book of Revelation is that the sea is what? The sea is where the beast rises out of in chapter 13 and verse 1. And so that the sea in the book of Revelation symbolizes chaos and rebellion. But what we see here in, in, in the throne room is that there is no more chaos. There is no more rebellion. All will be tranquil and peaceful in the presence of God as He will subdue the sea by His almighty power. As He looks through the sea of glass and sees everything that is transpiring in this universe. And then around the throne as well, what do we read in verses 7 and 8? There are four living creatures. One like a lion. One like an ox, one with a face like a man, and one with like an eagle in flight, which have six wings. And day and night they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now again, brothers and sisters, this text causes us to look back to the, the, the prophet Ezekiel as he keeps referencing things that are going on in that book. And so what we find in Ezekiel chapter 1 is likewise four living creatures. Now, the four living creatures in chapter 1 of Ezekiel are not identical to those in Revelation, but they are very similar. Right? There are four living creatures. In Ezekiel, though, they have four faces. In Revelation, only one. In Ezekiel, they only have four wings. In Revelation, they have six. But that also could be Jesus alluding back to Isaiah chapter 6 
Where the seraphim, we're told, in Isaiah's vision, had six wings. And they used two wings to cover their eyes, two wings to cover their feet, and two wings to fly. Okay? But it's in Ezekiel, later on, in chapter 10, that the four living creatures, we are told, correspond to the cherubim, to the angels. And so this is likewise how we are to interpret it in our own text. So we need to see these four creatures as angels who are heavenly representatives for all of creation, which the lion, which the ox, which the face of man, and which the eagle all symbolize. But then we have to ask the question, why four? Why why is it just four? What is four symbolic of? Well, four is symbolic of creation. But creation in all of its fullness. We see this in a text like Mark chapter 13 and verse 27. Concerning the second advent, we read this. And then He will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Right? And so four is a, is a symbol here then of creation in all of its fullness. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, what then is this a picture of? What is it a picture of? What is this picture meant to convey to the church? Well, just stop and think about it for a minute. What is it that we have just described? A throne in the center. Twenty-four thrones around. Four angels who are the living creatures in all of creation itself around the throne. That is the vision that we have here. And so the picture is meant to convey to the church that God is sovereign over all things. That God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over people. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over His church. And He is sovereign over animals. And the wind. And the grass. And the sea and the sky and the moon and the stars. He is the sovereign one over all of the universe. And they stand, all of creation, stands before the throne, the the thrice holy God, saying, holy, holy, holy. As they are in the presence of the divine fullness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they cannot help but to stand there, eyes wide open in awe, as they behold the glorious God who is in their midst. That is what the vision is. That is the the picture that we see. Brothers and sisters, this is your God. This is the God of the church. This is the God of the redeemed. What a vision then for the saints in the first century, isn't it? What a vision it is for us today that our God reigns sovereignly upon the throne and He does everything that He pleases for our good and for His glory. And nobody can stand in His way, for He is all-powerful. He is full of grace. He is holy. He is righteous. He is a covenant-keeping, faithful God to His people. And so I ask you here today, what then do you have to fear? What do you have to fear? What can man do to you? What can we not overcome and get through with the grace of God knowing this? Persevering in faith until the end. This then leads us to our third and final point this morning, which is practical application. Please, brothers and sisters, look with me at verses 9 to 11. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Today, brothers and sisters, God is unimportant to most of this world. To most of this world, they see themselves as controllers of their own destiny. They have removed God from the throne and they've placed themselves up in the throne room. And now they begin to to serve and worship themselves. But look what's going on in the vision amongst the redeemed. Right? They are, they are all around. They are encircling the throne, worshiping the only one and true object of worship. This is why worship seems though so strange to the world, does it not? Right? Christian worship seems strange to the world. As they worship themselves, we worship, we worship God. But this is also, brothers and sisters, why we need to stop trying to manipulate and change and conform our worship to appease sinful, idolatrous man. Right? We we cannot change that which is heavenly and spiritual into something that is carnal so that man can understand. Right? We need to understand that worship is for the saints. It's not for the unregenerate. Worship is for the redeemed. Worship is for those who Christ came and died for. Worship is for the ones who have been given golden crowns so that we might lay them before our Savior's feet every single day of our lives. Right? Know that. You, you are laying the, the crown before your, fa- before your Father's feet in the manner in which you live your life every single day. You are laying it down before His feet, recognizing that you are not your own. You are His. You were bought with a price. He owns you. You are to live for His glory and not your own. And so daily we ought to be taking our crowns off and putting them before God in submission to His sovereignty and His power and His control. It is He, our Lord, who ought to be the center of our lives just like the throne is the center of the vision here today. But the question I ask every single one of you here is, is is He? Is God the very center of your life and your being? One way you can answer this is, how do you use the Lord's Day? It is the Lord's Day. Do we use it seeing God as the center of the day? Or do we use it in a a self-centered way? It's God's hour. It's God's two hours. And then it's my day. Or how about the manner in which you live your life? Is it is it lived with God as the center or yourself as the center? What is it you find comfort in? What is it that you find happiness in? What is it you find yourselves most often doing? 
How do you live your lives? Is it in fear? Is it with anxiety and worry? Not knowing how things are going to turn out? Or is it holding fast to the faith? Persevering through every trial and tribulation? Knowing that the God who sits on the throne reigns over all and controls all? These verses, brothers and sisters, also ought to remind us of what our highest calling is as the servants of the Lord. And that is worshiping the King and giving Him glory. That is our highest calling. Worshiping the King and giving Him glory. That is your primary duty in this life. It's to celebrate God. That is what you were created for. And you can't do that if you do not belong to a church. You cannot do that if you do not belong to a church. Remember in this vision, what do we see? Not one person there and one person there and one person there. No, it is a corporate gathering. It is an assembling of the faithful before God. All singing in unison. All exalting His name and adoring the name of their God. Together, corporately. We take part in that as we gather on the Lord's Day today. We are a part of that vision that we see today with all of the angels and all of the redeemed. This also ought to show us, though, brothers and sisters, that there is an audience of one in worship. An audience of one. We do not come to worship to be seen. We do not come to worship for entertainment. We do not come to worship because of who the pastor is. We do not even come to worship to socialize. You could socialize anywhere. But rather, we come to worship because we have been summoned by our King to worship Him according to His Word and His will, which we find in these 66 books of the Bible. He is the one that we are to look to appease, not man. For each and every one of you who are here today are, are here today because of Him. You are here because He sent His Son into the world to die for your sin. That is the only reason that you know the Father. It is only through the Son that you know the Father. It is only through the Son that you have been reconciled to the Father. It is only through the Son that you might behold the glory of the One who sits upon the throne. The One who was and who is and who is to come. The unchangeable, infinite, sovereign One who brought all things into existence and who alone is deserving of worship and praise. And so in response, like the 24 elders who fall down and worship Him, let us, brothers and sisters, every day of our lives fall down and worship Him with the manner in which we live our lives. Let us walk in here every Lord's Day humbly falling down before His throne of grace. right, Rejoicing and singing with the saints. Confessing His name with the myriads and myriads of angels and saints in heaven saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God. And as the first century church refused to bow the knee then to Caesar or any idol, we too must do the same. We must not bow the knee to any idol in our day and age today. We must not look to other leaders. We must not trust in other leaders, even when things are going bad. 
Right? Knowing that God is sovereign over the universe. He is sovereign over all things. And brothers and sisters, what peace that ought to bring to our hearts and our minds. What strength we ought to derive from that every single day of our lives as we continue to push forward to that heavenly call, rejoicing together as a body, knowing that our Lord is King. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful that You have allowed us a glimpse into the throne room. That You, Father, have enabled us to see what the outcome of the world will be. That we know, Father, that no matter what trials or tribulations we might suffer, that the kingdom of Christ is already conquered. And we have already been transferred into that kingdom. And so right now, we are simply awaiting the return of Christ. And so, Father, we ask that while we await Your return, You would continue to strengthen us, that You would continue to show us more and more our need to look heavenward uh, so that we might persevere until the end to the praise and glory of Your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.